We're so glad you could join us for the mornings at YCBC today. We want to thank you for being a part of our online family and we hope that this message encourages you, blesses you and helps you grow in your walk with him. So let's get into the word. Well, good morning. Uh, hopefully I live up somewhat uh, to at least the friendship part of that compliment this morning. Uh, well, dear church, that's where we're up to at the moment. We're we're speaking about Jesus' seven letters to seven churches. and But as the, the reading highlighted at the end, it says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Uh, and so this isn't just for Pergamum, the, the letter today. This is for all of us, for the church throughout all of time. And so uh, the whole church should be paying attention to this. And so today's letter is to Pergamum. Uh, Jesus... Uh, says, written down by uh, the, the Apostle John, says in verse 12, to the angel of the church of Pergamon write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. And, and, and so as each letter goes, we get an address to a church, to Pergamon in this case, and we get a descriptor of Jesus who is speaking it. And so these descriptors go back to the revelation that John saw of Jesus. And so if we go back to Revelation chapter 1, the setting for all of these letters is that uh, John was uh, in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. He was in prayer. Uh, I, I imagine he was kind of uh, encountering the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit and he heard a loud voice, uh, the voice like rushing waters were told, and he turned around to see who was speaking. Uh, and, and Jesus uh, spoke and said, write these seven letters to the churches, and then the rest of Revelation flows on from there. And so this, he who has a double-edged sword, is from part of that in Revelation chapter 1, 15 to 16. I'm just going to go back to that now. And, and so John says, when he was looking at Jesus, this is what he saw. He says, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And so coming out of Jesus' mouth in this vision, uh, symbolic vision, uh, you know, Jesus didn't necessarily have a, a sword for a tongue, but in this vision representative of the person of Jesus in his glorified state, John saw what he described as a double-edged sword. Uh, and, and so this was coming out of his mouth, so it, it's symbolic of the power and authority of his voice. It's symbolic of the power and authority of Jesus' word. Elsewhere it says that, that the scripture is like a double-edged sword. It, it divides uh, between soul and spirit. It, it cuts to the, the heart of things. And so in each of these letters, the, the aspect of Jesus that's revealed in the, to the church right, these are the words of him who, is so specific to what he's speaking into the life of that church. So we can't miss it. This is key to the letter. That Jesus' word is powerful, it is strong, it is of all authority. It's, it's the sound of rushing waters. There's, there's, there's a great power to it. And so this is key to what goes on. And so in each of these letters... Jesus knows something. He says to every church, I know. And, and most of the churches, he says, I know your deeds, except for two of them. And we've already done one. But this is the second letter uh, that Jesus doesn't talk about the deeds. He talks about he knows something else. And so in verse 13, he says, I know where you live. I don't know if you've ever had that said to me. I had it said to me at a cafe the other day. I, was like, I haven't paid for my chai tea yet. And the, the shopkeeper 
to not name names said, oh, well, I know where you live. But this word know doesn't just mean I know your address. Jesus is saying I understand the nature of the place in which you live. He says, I know, I understand where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. And so Jesus knows where they live. They live in a a city called Pergamum. That's their address. And it was actually a very rich and powerful city. It was the the capital or the seat of a a kingdom or or an empire uh, in Asia Minor that ruled most of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, well, most of modern-day Turkey, was ruled from Pergamon. But the line of those kings kind of came to an end and they said, here, Rome, have it. Rome didn't want it. Someone else took it. There was a big war. But now Rome dominated and controlled that territory. And it was the Asian province of Rome, with Pergamon still as its essential capital. Just don't tell Ephesus. They kind of thought that they were. <laughs> and so it's, it's a powerful city. But, but that's not what Jesus is so much interested in. It's not the power and the wealth of the city. He said that Satan's throne is there. He says that it's where Satan lives. And so Pergamum had a history of significant temples to pagan gods. But in 29 BC, on top of that, a temple to the imperial cult was built in honour of Augustus Caesar. And so imperial cult is another way of saying that a temple in which people worshipped the emperor of Rome was built in Pergamon. And soon after John's time, so after this letter was written, a spectacular temple, a a huge temple was built to the emperor Trajan. And and so that kind of demonstrates that all through this time that the, the worship of the emperor was key to the city and the prosperity of the city and the identity of the city. And so Pergamon is the center for worship of the emperor as a god. And so it it was said of Caesar all throughout Rome that Caesar is Lord. And so Jesus, when he comes in, and and when it's told of him to be saved, we must declare that Jesus is Lord. This is a treasonous statement in Rome. In Pergamum and, and the empire worship, emperor worship, that surrounded that, in the eastern part of the empire especially, it wasn't just treason, it was heresy to say anyone but Caesar is Lord. And so to reject the worship of the emperor at the temple was treason. You you didn't have a choice to not do that. Yet Jesus says in verse 13, yet, yet, I know where you live. I understand the dynamics of your situation. Yet, you remain true to my name. Despite all the pressures and temptation of living where Satan has his throne. The church has stayed true to the name of Jesus. Not the name of Caesar. And Jesus says, even when Antipas was martyred, you remain faithful. 
And so if you were here or, or have listened to last week's message, the, the church in Smyrna was encouraged to be faithful, even to the point of death. That was the big takeaway, that, that you're going to suffer trials and persecutions and that, that Jesus was calling the church at Smyrna and therefore calling all of us to be faithful to him, even to the point of death. Well, in the letter to Pergamon, that's already happened. Antipas was one of the first known martyrs, not the first, it probably goes to Stephen, uh, but one of the first known martyrs of the Christian church. And and what is likely to have happened, uh, which was the the standard kind of scene for one of these martyrdoms, one of these executions for faith, would have been likely that Antipas was forced to either to sacrifice to Caesar or one of the other gods in Pergamon, and his refusal to do that meant that he was condemned to death. And so Jesus is saying to Pergamon, even though you have seen this take place for one of your brothers, even though you are abundantly aware this is not hypothetical, even to the point of death stuff here, this, is, this has happened in your city, and you've remained faithful. They haven't shied away from worshipping Jesus and refusing to worship Caesar as Lord, even when it, not just hypothetically, but definitely can lead to death. And so what's the takeaway for us? Well, the takeaway for us is that Jesus knows where we live. I'm pretty sure he knows our address. Google knows that, so Jesus knows more than Google. I'm confident of that. If you agree, you can say amen, that Jesus knows more than Google. Amen. But he doesn't just know where you live. Jesus knows the challenges, the temptations, and the trials of your situation. They're not unknown to him. Your circumstances are abundantly known to Jesus. He's not unaware. And he sees and he knows and he wants to encourage us when we're faithful to him in those circumstances. This is high praise from the Lord of all creation to the church in Pergamon to say, you've been faithful even when they started killing you for it. And so Jesus sees and knows those decisions that we make, that when we are faithful, when it would have been easier, more convenient to do otherwise. I don't know about you, but I've not had that situation where I've, uh, I've, I've been threatened with death for my faith. But all the way up until that point, Jesus still sees and knows and wants to encourage us for our faithfulness. But the letter goes on. Jesus says, nevertheless, this is kind of one of the highest words of praise that Jesus gives to a church, but it's also one of the most challenging words. He says in verse 14 and 15, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And so we'll start with the Nicolaitans first because we don't really know anything about them except for it was a a common false teaching. So one of the earlier churches, the first church was encouraged because they hated these teachings. But here some in Pergamon have have started to to adopt 
those teachings. And so, as I said a few weeks ago, the only thing we really know about them, there's been lots of guesses throughout history, but the only thing we really know about them is it was false teaching and that they had a leader named Nicholas. And so if we're going to take this literally, don't follow anyone named Nicholas as your leader. (laughs) But I don't think that's the message. But it also says that that some, some, and this is not the whole church, some are holding to the teachings of Balaam, which isn't a, a literal teaching. There wasn't a prophet named Balaam. This is referring to an extremely ancient story. It's referring to an episode which is most famous for a talking donkey. The Bible had one before Shrek by thousands of years. It points to an episode where Israel fell into temptation and participated in the worship of the Baals in Moab. And associated with that worship was sexual immorality and pagan feasts and festivals. And so this was when Israel had left the promised land. They had journeyed through the wilderness and they're on the way to their own land and they're passing by Moab. And they got tempted to kind of like, oh, this Baal worship looks kind of good. Those Moabite women also look kind of good. And those feasts they're having, we've been journeying through the wilderness for like 40 years, They, they look kind of good. We're missing out here. And so they got lured into compromising their faith in God. But Israel wouldn't have felt like they were denouncing their faith. They would have just thought, well, we're just kind of bringing the best of Baal worship from Moab and into that, and we're learning from this cross-cultural experience. The church at Pergamum, they've just been encouraged that they haven't renounced the name of Jesus. And so I'm sure that they would have thought, I haven't rejected my faith. But what they have done and what what, uh, Jesus is pointing to here is that some of them are engaging in pagan worship. That might not be how they see it, but they're showing up to the feasts and they're showing up to and and around a lot of pagan worship is is kind of sexually immoral practices. And so they wouldn't have thought, well, I'm not going to re- reject the name of Jesus, but eh, a little bit of this won't hurt. There was a compromise there. They'd compromised their faith. And so the kind of picture to make it a modern day picture is it's like they haven't rejected Jesus with a gun to their head, but some of them have just started to deny him in what seems like, in inverted commas, the small things, the odd pagan feast, the odd little dabble into showing up at the temple. A little bit of sexual immorality over here. And, and so for us, it's kind of like, well, I won't deny Jesus. If someone hope, holds a gun to my head and says, I'm going to pull the trigger if you don't renounce Jesus, then, then many of us would say, I, I, I don't want that to happen. But yeah, I'll be strong in that moment. But then there's all these little compromises we might make along the way and so for us the little things the daily things are so much more real in our life than that lose your life for Jesus moment at this point 
not so for every believer around the world. And so what was their motivation? What was the motivation of Pergamon to compromise their faith with these other things? Maybe it was FOMO. Who knows what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. You're in church on a Sunday morning and what's that noise up at, up at Augustus's temple? Sounds, sounds like they're having a lot of fun up there. And oh, my neighbour came home and he's like, did you hear what they had? They got to eat pork at the temple. Bacon! <laughs> Maybe it was a little bit of wanting the best bits of both. A little bit of, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I have a little bit of this because that's, that's kind of good and I'll grab a little bit of that. Mixing it all together. Maybe it was to get their pagan card punched to avoid martyrdom. Maybe it was a, a fear thing that if I just show up at, at the temple a few times and, and make a big deal that I'm there, hi everyone, I'm here for temple worship, then I won't get kind of picked from the crowd when they're starting to kill Christians. Maybe it's just getting the pagan emperor worship ticket punched. Maybe it was simply just to fit in with the crowd to go with the flow. The whole city's doing it. Maybe it was a habit. Maybe for some of these believers, and remember we're talking first or second generation after the first lot of believers that were around when Jesus walked the earth, maybe for some of them it was just their habit. They've done it their whole life and you know I've always done that on a Saturday afternoon. Maybe it was because they misunderstood the grace of God. Because after all, hadn't, hadn't Paul written in 1 Corinthians, that, that, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that all things are permissible and that we're free to eat all things? And so maybe they said, well, it doesn't really matter. I can just show up at the temple and I can eat the feast and I can dabble in all the practices that involve in that because of God's grace and freedom. But that's a misunderstanding of God's grace. Paul wasn't talking about participation in temple worship. He was saying if your neighbour takes a Tupperware of meat home from temple worship and invites you over for a meal later on and you eat some of it, that's okay. You're not participating in the worship at the temple and, and the meat might have been de dedicated to a false god, but it's not a real god, but that's okay. It's just meat at that point. And so maybe they misunderstood God's grace. Like, well, it's okay if I do this stuff. I know it's, it's, it's not what I should be doing. But God is a gracious God. And He is. Abundantly so. But His grace is to empower us to be free from sin, not to give us permission to sin. And so the key question for us is, how is our own faith being compromised? How are our priorities diluted or divided? Where are we giving in to FOMO? Where are we going out of habit or fitting in with the crowd? Where are we getting our pagan card punched? And by that, you know, there's not too many pagan temples in Yas, but, but where are we getting our, well, we're just like everybody else card punched when it's really a compromise of our faith? What is it? Is it diluted priorities? Is it drunkenness? Is it the way we spend our money? Is it pornography? Is it, is it any number of other things? It's not like I'm trying to list a list of, of sins this morning. I'm trying to get us to anchor back to the question of, well, how am I allowing my faith to be compromised? 
Because I'd like to say, absolutely, threaten my life to reject Jesus. I'd like to say that I would stand faithful in that moment. Just as Jesus encouraged Pergamon that they were indeed doing. But he wanted them to look at all the space in between. And how has faith been lived out there? But Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. This isn't just a a word of condemnation. We need to remember Revelations chapter 3.19, which is in the final letter to the churches. Jesus says, Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And so Jesus' rebuke here to Pergamon, Jesus' rebuke here to us when we have a compromised faith, is that he wants us to turn back to him wholeheartedly and repent. It's because he loves us and doesn't want to leave us compromised. And so repentance is the antidote. In verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Them is those who have compromised their faith. And so repentance is the antidote. It's a conscious turning from sinful behavior and the compromises we've made back to Jesus. That's all. It's not a groveling. It's not an earning of our salvation again. It's not an offering sacrifices because Jesus has already done that. It's simply a turning from the compromise wholeheartedly back to Jesus. And so this isn't about works righteousness. This is not Jesus saying to the church, you're not holy enough for me. You're not holy enough to be saved. This is not about earning salvation, but turning wholeheartedly back to Jesus. And so Jesus says, if the church or those in the church that are allowing their faith to be compromised don't repent, then I'll come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's saying, I'll come and my word will purify the church if the church won't repent and purify itself. Because the church is Jesus' bride. That's, that's how we're described in Scripture. In Revelation, we, we get to this wedding feast with the lamb, which using lamb to describe Jesus and the church. It's a marriage. And so Jesus is not looking for a compromised bride. Jesus is not looking for a bride that he has to share with others. He doesn't want to share his bride with Zeus or Athena or Augustus or Trajan or anything else that we might compromise our faith with today. Jesus does not want to share. And so the church is called to be pure and spotless. To be wholehearted for nothing other than but Jesus. Of course, the only way we can do that is through repentance, through that turning back to Jesus wholeheartedly and through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And really, this this becomes so much less burdensome when we realize we're not able to fully live this out apart from God's power within us. And so the key question for us is, is how is our own faith being compromised? But, but the key takeaway here is, is that we're called to repent of all of our compromises. 
We're called back to a desire to be a purely pure and holy and uncompromised bride for Jesus. Not to earn our salvation, but because we already have it. In response to his grace, not in taking advantage of his grace. And so in Psalm 139, um, and we'll come back to this as we pray to conclude in in a little while, but in Psalm 139... There's this prayer that's kind of helpful in this space in 139, verse 23 and 24. The psalmist David says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. And, and so this is that kind of prayer to, to say, search me, God. Show me the compromises I'm making. Show me uh, the areas where I'm, I'm diluting my faith, compromising my faith. Reveal it to me because I want to be wholehearted and holy and pure before you. The question is, how am I being compromised in my faith? The antidote is repentance. And so like every letter, though, to these churches, Jesus gives a promise to to encourage us, to give us a goal to move towards. And so in verse 17, he says, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. And so this is one of those verses as a preacher, I feel like that needs no explanation. Manna, a rock and a name. That's pretty clear, isn't it? No? Blank looks? This is one of those verses, okay, research is required. And so the hidden manna points back Thousands of years to that time where Israel were in the desert before they polluted themselves in Moab and compromised their faith. It points back to how God provided for them. Not through pagan feasts, but through supernatural bread on the ground. Manna. And so this is a promise that you don't need to go to the feasts. You don't need to participate in compromises in order to be provided for. God will provide. And in contrast to the, to the, the um, worship feasts of Augustus' temple, this is also pointing us forward to what is talked about later in Revelation, this, this wedding feast that we get to have with Jesus. He's saying, I'll provide for you. You, you might miss out on a few feasts up at the temple, but you're going to get to go to the greatest feast. It's also pointing to who Jesus is himself, that Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. And this happened in Jesus' earthly ministry. People came to him and said, oh, you know, Moses gave us food in the desert. Can you give us some more food? And and Jesus pointed them to him, to not look to the temporary satisfaction of the stomach or other parts of your body. Look for the eternal satisfaction, the bread of life that only comes through Jesus. So this is the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. He says, I will give you that hidden manna. I will give you food that is longer lasting and more satisfying. He'll also give you a white stone. And so there's evidence 
that points to the fact that uh, in a jury verdict in this time, a guilty verdict would be a black stone and an acquittal would be a white stone. And so the church has been on trial. I wonder whether Antipas stood before a jury and they all voted on whether he should be put to death for his refusal to worship Caesar and they placed a black stone before him. Jesus is saying, I'll give you a white stone. Before him, if we put our trust in him, if we put our faith in him, before Jesus we're given an acquittal. There's also evidence to suggest that white stones were like tickets to festivals. That, that it was like a ticket of entrance, this, uh, this approval thing um, that perhaps were engraved with things uh, to kind of be your ticket. But there's, there's, there's evidence that a white stone was related to getting to go to the festival. So again, this is a pointing to we might miss out on some pagan festivals, but we get to go to the greatest festival there'll ever be. It's called heaven. He said he'll give us a name. He'll give us a true identity in him. And so the point is we have no need for FOMO. No need for fear of missing out. No need for compromises because if we live an uncompromised faith in this life, it will be worth it, Jesus is saying. What he offers us is better, is eternal. And it's far more satisfying. And so I'm going to go back to Psalm 139. I'm going to invite our awesome Cape and Ray team to come and lead us in a final song in a moment. And if you're willing and able, I want to encourage you to stand with me as I pray. And as we come into a time of worship. And so I want to encourage you in response to God's word. To let this be your prayer. This is not about shame. This is not about guilt. And condemnation. Jesus rebukes, he corrects, he does disciplines those he loves. And so the last thing Jesus would want us to leave here with is feeling guilty, feeling ashamed, and feeling condemned. Those are the very things he wants to lift off to, lift off us this morning. But this is about repenting about turning away from anything that compromises or pollutes our faith that we might be entirely his and so I encourage you to in your hearts pray this simple prayer with me you can um, take this next time of, of, of this final worship song to just meditate on those questions and that response Jesus I want to be fully yours
So we say this to you, God. Search us. God, and know us. Know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See and show us if there's any offensive way in us. Show us, Lord, that we might turn from any compromises we're making in our faith. And lead us in the way everlasting. We want to be fully yours, Lord. We want to be a pure and spotless bride. We want to give ourselves to no other but you. Yet we know that we are fickle in our own capacity to do so. So we want to repent this morning of all compromises and we want to ask your Holy Spirit to refresh, to renew and to lead us in the way everlasting that we might be fully and wholeheartedly yours. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for joining us today. As you head back into your week, we want to encourage you to stay in His Word, stay in His love, and stay strong in your faith. Don't forget to keep up to date with what's happening via Facebook, Instagram, or via our website at ycbc.church. See you soon.